You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So the midterm elections are coming up, but I am sure that none of you know what that is. Because you all are good Christians. You are not conveyed by the whims and the winds of political conversations. No. You get to wake up every day, get in your car, turn on the radio, and you don't have to hear about who is running You can watch your favorite television program every evening, and you don't have to see a single commercial about who is running. You can even go to work and not have a single political conversation with any of your coworkers. Isn't it such a great time to be alive, friends? Well, because you all are you, and you don't know what the midterms are, let me explain them to you. The midterms. The midterms, they happen every four years. Every four years, and they happen midway through a president's four-year term in office, two years in. This year, for us, November, all of the seats in the House of Representatives are up for grabs. Every single representative is going to be voted on. 33 of our 100 senators are going to be voted on, so a third of all the senators are up for election this year. There are countless governors and even more people running for state and local elections. But you all don't know about it. So, I'm here to share it with you. And so it's just like any other election, you know? One that we're not laying awake thinking about at night. One that we're not talking about with our friends or our family or our coworkers or even strangers. And so because you all don't know what the midterms are, because you're not worried about them at all, I want to share something with you that you probably don't know. Imagine if you can in your head, don't shout it out loud, imagine if you can in your head, how much money will be spent on this election? So just think about a number in your head, because I don't want to hear some of the frightening numbers you might throw out. Now, I don't want you to think about numbers of money uh, that might come from super PACs or organizations or anything like that. Just think about money that's been donated by citizens, people like you and me, that has been spent by politicians for this upcoming midterm election. Think about that number in your head. Just think about it for a second. Because the actual amount of money that will be spent by the first week of November is $4 billion. It will be the most expensive election in our country's history. $4 billion. With one of those billion being used for television ads alone. $4 billion. Now, don't get me wrong. Elections are very important. They are part of the fabric of who we are as a country. They represent a freedom that many people in the world will never know. And, of course, not all politicians are bad. Some of them are evil. (laughs) I'm glad you laughed. Of course, yeah, okay, not all politicians are bad. You know, some of them are okay. Some of them feel run, uh, called to run because they want the world to be a better place. But at the same time, I just, I want this to sink in a little bit, Okay. Four billion dollars. 
If you're at all familiar with the Marvel franchise, it's a, it's a comic book company that made movies. They've made a ton of them. All of the Marvel movies combined, there's 19 of them. If you combine how much it costs to make all of them, it's still not even $4 billion. And that's how much money has been raised, has been given by people like you and me, so that politicians might spend that money to discern and decide who will represent us in November. $4 billion. So what does it say? What does it say about those who are running? What does it say about us, people who have given money to political campaigns? What does it say that we are willing to spend $4 billion on an election? James and John, they were two of Jesus' 12 disciples. And for some reason, Jesus referred to these brothers as the, not only the sons of Zebedee, but he called them the sons of thunder. We don't know why he gave them that nickname, but if it was good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. So the sons of thunder, they were idiots. <laughs> they were idiots, they were self-absorbed, and they did not know what they were doing. Jesus has just predicted his passion, his death, his resurrection for the third and final time to his 12 disciples. He said, see, we're on our way to Jerusalem. I will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn me to death. I will be handed to the Gentiles. They will mock me. They will spit on me. They will flog me. They will kill me. And three days later, I will rise again. And what happens next? The Thunder Brothers approach Jesus like children. Hey, Jesus, will you do whatever we ask you to do? Will you do whatever we ask you to do? And you can almost hear Jesus sigh. What do you want, Thunder Brothers? Lord, allow us to sit at your left and your right in your glory. They wanted all the power. They wanted to be Jesus' Secretary of State and his Secretary of Defense. They wanted to be the junior and the senior state senator. They wanted to be the Speaker of the House and the Majority Leader in the Senate of whatever Jesus' kingdom would be. Their question, it comes on the heels of Jesus laying it all out for the disciples. So either they were not listening to what their Messiah said, or they were dumber than a box of hammers. Which makes me wonder how the first Christians reacted to the story when they heard it. Did it make them laugh? Because it's pretty laughable. Did the other ten point their fingers and ridicule the Thunder Brothers for their idiot question? Well, apparently not. Because as Leo read for us, lest we bash these Thunder Brothers alone, the rest of the disciples, the other ten, they fare no better. Hearing Jesus' utter rebuke of their request, the rest of the disciples got angry. It doesn't take much of an imagination to picture these twelve ragtag group, these followers of the Holy One bickering with each other. Oh, no, no, no. I'm Jesus' favorite. Oh, no, no, no. When he's gone, I'm going to be in charge. and You're going to have to do whatever I say. It was such a squabble, such a fight, that Jesus had to teach them about true greatness and true power. He said, you know, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, they lord it over them. And their great ones are like tyrants. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For I came in the world not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for you. 
This whole story reads like a comedy. Because we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story. We know that the tomb is empty. We know what his power really looks like. But none of us laughed when Leo read the story. Maybe for us, for some reason, we feel either defensive about their behavior or we're apathetic about it. We might not like to admit it, but we can feel for the Thunder Brothers. Maybe they just want to make sure they're protected should anything serious happen to Jesus. Or perhaps they're just seizing their moment, shoring up future opportunities. And it's really easy to bash the Thunder Brothers across the sands of time. But all of us here, all of us, sinners and saints, we all have a little bit of that thunder in us. And maybe our thirst for power, our thirst for security has us asking for things that we do not really understand. Surely, surely all of us here know better than to make outlandish and insensitive requests like the Thunder Brothers did. Should we have been there that day? We, we would not have asked to sit at Jesus' right and left in his glory. But you know what? Most of us always want to be first in line at the grocery store. We want our children to go to the best schools possible. We want to pay the lowest taxes possible. We want, we want, we want. We actually want a lot of things that we never actually admit out loud. So maybe the Thunder Brothers were just desperate. And then could we really blame them? I mean, here they are at the close to the end of the gospel. Jesus has thrice told them about his impending death. Maybe the Thunder Brothers just wanted to make sure they'd still have their pension. Maybe they just want to make sure that their social security was going to come back to them. Perhaps it was just pure desperation that propelled them to ask for such a crazy thing. Therefore, it's their desperate clutch for power that blinds them from the truth of the Messiah they were following. But desperation, particularly in the face of the cross, desperation is a strange thing to experience in the kingdom. And we really are no better. Each of us, every one of us in different ways, are desperate for our own power. From the frightening ways we are so gripped by the politics of our time, cough, cough, four billion dollars, to the strange ways we isolate ourselves from anything other than what we might deem as normal. We are a people. We are a people who are hell-bent on securing our futures rather than risking the way of the cross. And even the church is guilty of the Thunder Brothers' temptation. We water down the gospel. We present it in bite-sized pieces in order to appeal to as many people as possible. We want all the grace without any of the expectations. We want Jesus to fix all of our problems, but when we encounter someone else with a problem, we wait for someone else to help them. We're sinners and we're saints. We're filled with insecurities and fears that drive us toward greed and covetousness as individuals and families and communities and political parties and even the church. We do it all the time. And overcoming this desire for power, this this need, this fear of our own insecurities, it's no easy thing to change. And it certainly can't change overnight. It can't be fixed with one sermon, one prayer, but it does start to transform through service, whatever that might mean. Because it is in serving others, it is in doing something for someone else, someone we might deem unworthy, that we are confronted with the profound truth that we are really the ones who are unworthy. 
In the other, we actually see the sin of our own desire for power. But serving others, putting others' needs first, doesn't just fix us. It's not a salve. It won't make all of our problems go away. It doesn't earn us a special spot in heaven. All serving does is reorient our perspective while making the world better for somebody else. Serving the other, it helps us see how often our thirst for power is what drives us away from the cross instead of closer to it. I mean, Jesus rebukes the Thunder Brothers. He rebukes all of the disciples. And that might sound really harsh to us, to our modern and prejudiced ears today. But his rebuke isn't really a rebuke. It's actually a promise. Jesus promises that we need not live in fear, that we need not wake up every morning worrying about our security, that we need not scheme to accrue as much power as possible. But Jesus doesn't promise our protection. He doesn't promise our safety. He doesn't even promise us any power. The only thing Jesus promises us is the cross. It's the way of prosperity and power. Though decisively tempting in a time like ours, it is but a shadow and a shallow promise of what the empty tomb ironically contains. Jesus' way. The way of the cross is a way of resisting the dominating systems that are all around us and that are surely within us. The dominating systems are those that do whatever it takes to maintain and exert power dynamics that keep the strong strong and keep the weak weak. From our politics to our families to our churches, the thirst and hunger for power, it lives and breathes by controlling people by subordinating people, by further dividing the weak from the strong, the powerful from the powerless, and the rich from the poor. But the cross, the cross of our Lord is the ultimate alternative to those systems that plague our existence. Jesus, Jesus lived and breathed not by amassing power and prestige, but by bearing the suffering that always comes as a result for caring for the weak and putting the last First, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus regularly resisted the kind of power that is still all too present in the world. Jesus shows us a different way of power where true power comes through weakness, through service, and through sacrifice. And so we know, we know among those whom they recognize as rulers, the politicians and the powerful, we know that they lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so among us. Because among us, whoever wishes to become great must be a servant. Whoever wishes to be first must be a slave of all. For Jesus, our Lord, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for us. And that makes all the difference in the world. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. I know I've um, shared this story a number of times, but I think it was just such a profound moment in my life uh, that it bears worth repeating. During the last presidential election cycle, I felt completely overwhelmed by the political rhetoric, the political narrative that was just 
consuming everyone that I knew. And I remember waking up on election day and being so thankful because it meant that it was finally going to be over. And so I woke up and I went to the local polling station and I was the first person there who was the Seventh Day Adventist Church. And so I walked in with my collar on because I'm dumb. And I went straight over to the booth. Filled out my little scantron and the machine ate it and it said, ding! First voter. And I was expecting like a revelatory moment, like the weight was going to fall off my shoulders. But I felt even worse than I did before. And I looked up from the voting booth and I saw a painting of Jesus and he was laughing his butt off. And I thought that's the most perfect thing I could have seen. Jesus laughing. Jesus laughing at all of us. As if we can govern ourselves. As if we know what's best for me and for you. Because usually, when we think about what's best for me, it means it's the worst for somebody else. And so when I saw Jesus laughing at me that day, I was reminded and I was grateful that Jesus is not our president. That Jesus is not our senator. He is not our congressman. He is not on our Supreme Court. No, Jesus is none of those things. Jesus is something far Jesus is our Lord. With Jesus as our Lord. To think about how our lives have been dramatically changed and transformed at times for the worse and at times for the better. I now ask for the ushers to come and to receive the gifts of God's people.